Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of the Liskey family murders. Martin, Ohio is a speck of a thing, an unincorporated community in Ottawa County. It's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone else, as its population runs somewhere around 1,100 people. But October 31st, 2010, would put Martin on the map, not for some festive tradition or notable Halloween event, but instead, senseless tragedy. For most people in the town, they consider it so horrific it's nearly unspeakable. During the morning hours of Halloween, 16-year-old Devin Griffin was just finishing up a church choir concert and heading to his mom's house for the week. Devin's parents were divorced, and when his mother Susan moved in with her new husband, William Liskey, she made sure that there would be more than enough room for Devin and his brother Derek whenever they weren't staying at their dad's place. William, who everyone called Bill, also had a son named William, who everyone called BJ. BJ and Derek were only a year apart, so they'd naturally expected that the two would get along, but BJ stretched any kindness to the bare minimum for his new step-siblings. When it came time to unpack boxes and blend the two families in 2001, he was still bitter about his father's divorce. That tension had barely lifted over the last nine years, but 24-year-old BJ wasn't living at home right now, so the usual sense of dread that Devin felt as he headed to one half of his family was thankfully gone. His Aunt Lori had called him at his dad's before church, asking if he'd heard from Derek. Apparently, he was supposed to help out with some yard work that morning, but hadn't shown up, and nobody was answering the phone at home. When he walked into the house and noticed it was totally quiet, he figured his mother was still asleep. He made his way upstairs to his room, started up his PlayStation, and settled in for some relaxing Sunday gaming. He'd let Derek know his aunt was looking for him when he came by later. But when Devin noticed it was around 1.30 p.m., he figured he would go check on his mom, who never slept in that late, even on a lazy Sunday. And usually by now, there was some bustling excitement for trick-or-treaters and family traditions. Sue and Bill Liskey's master bedroom was downstairs, the shape of their bodies clearly still asleep beneath the maroon comforter. His mother's foot was peeking out from the bottom. "'Are you guys seriously still sleeping?' It's like 1.30 in the afternoon, Devin laughed as he walked over to his mother's side and tugged on her foot. When she didn't move, he pulled the blanket down from over her head and was startled to see bright red stains of blood all over the white pillowcase. Devin let out a strange giggle, nervously remembering that it's Halloween, waiting in suspension for his mother to snap him out of the impossible. Devin pulled the blanket down to reveal Bill, but all he could see was blood. This wasn't a prank. He ran out of his home, half crying, half screaming, running to the neighbors and calling his Aunt Lori. 911 dispatchers would have police out to the home within no time, searching and securing the scene. Inside, they were unable to open Derek Griffin's bedroom door. After no response, they kicked it down and found him clubbed to death with a claw hammer. When authorities asked Evan if he knew who would want to hurt his family like this, he didn't hesitate for a second. He knew without a doubt it had to be his brother, BJ. Raising William BJ Liskey hadn't been smooth sailing, but the culmination of his father's divorce, blending into a new family and reaching adulthood, had caused a boiling point. 
BJ had a history of struggles with mental illness. He was no stranger to skipping school and breaking the rules, but Bill's remarriage to Susan gave him a conduit, a scapegoat to channel all of his rage. Things had been chaotic for the entire family, almost from the very second that Devin, Derek, and Susan moved in. The history of police visits to the home would show a pattern of parents desperate to regain control, and a child unable to manage his emotions and impulses. In 2002, Bill called the police because BJ threatened to kill himself, and when they got there, BJ attacked them. He ended up being charged with assaulting an officer in juvenile court and was put on house arrest. The home continued to be full of constant tension and drama. 2004 would highlight two separate incidents where BJ had been violent towards Susan. In October, he struck Susan hard in the chest while they were in the middle of an argument. In December, he hit her with a coffee cup and stole her car keys. He was charged with assault and robbery, but found incompetent to stand trial, and the charges were eventually dropped. As things continued to escalate, Bill was desperate to reach his son, who by now was some angry and empty shadow of the child he'd once carried around in his arms. Susan, having raised two boys herself, had come into the situation headstrong, expecting to create some sort of structure in the home. But it had only strained things with BJ even more, causing him to retaliate in any way he could. And just because the police weren't called doesn't mean that it wasn't bad in between those visits. Sometimes things would escalate to the point where Derek would call Mark, a next-door neighbor who was also a close family friend, because BJ's fights with his dad would become physical. It was clear that they were in over their heads in terms of how to handle their son and what they could offer him. His mood swings were so erratic, so intense, his beliefs so strong, his feelings were the only thing that guided his actions. There were even times when it seemed like he was angry at things that hadn't even happened or looking at things that weren't there. By 2006, Bill filed for guardianship over BJ who would then be hospitalized and diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type in 2007. The guardianship application would state that Bill wanted to protect BJ and make sure he got him the help he needs, because when BJ regularly takes medication, he stabilizes and does really well. But after a while, he thinks he's okay and that he doesn't need his medication anymore. So he'll stop taking it and start drinking, smoking pot, etc., Bill wanted to eventually see BJ released into some sort of supportive living facility. The last time BJ lived with them, Bill had to kick him out for attempting to attack Susan while she was in the shower, so coming home wasn't an option anymore. But that didn't mean that Bill didn't love his son, and he would go to the ends of the earth to make sure that he got the care he needed. And BJ would eventually move into a group home for mental health patients in Sandusky, Bill visited frequently, although it would often spark arguments, and BJ got physically violent more than once. But that never stopped him from trying to nurture a relationship with his son. Bill believed that sooner or later, things would just click. And when that happened, he wanted BJ to see that his family had never given up on him all along. Sure, his son had thrown punches, acted extreme, but he thought things were getting better. Just 24 hours before the murders, Bill had been wrapping up a little deer hunting vacation with BJ at their family cabin in Carroll County. With BJ's diagnosis and the tense history in the family, Bill wasn't naive to expect a miracle. But the night before his son killed him, Bill had gone to sleep easy, hoping that somehow things were finally on the mend. <laughs> 